So hello and welcome to another edition of the In Context podcast. Today we've got another friend of mine, it's John Norwood. Uh, I met John for the first time in, was it in 2021, last autumn, was it John? At the the Jonas Centre. Yeah, 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 just last October, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but we've engaged for a while on, on Twitter. So again, another positive of Twitter. A lot of people whinge about Twitter being a nightmare, but there is some positives of it. Relationships can be built and uh, resources can be shared through it. But John, uh, if you'd just like to introduce yourself, let me know whereabouts in the country you are and what you're doing. Uh, great. Yeah. So my name's John. I'm uh, the minister at a little uh, church on a council estate on the edge of Birkenhead on the Wirral. So just across the Mersey from Liverpool. Um, we've been there for... Um, about six and a half years now. It's a, an old kind of brethren chapel um, that got revitalised um, about nine years ago. And then, yeah, six and a half years ago, we moved across for me to uh, basically take on the leadership of that. Moved on to the estate, got stuck in, and um, yeah, love it. It's home. Brilliant. So it was a brethren church. <clears throat> Sorry, just talking out the way that put my power cable back in. Nah. It's a brethren church. Did you come from a, uh, another brethren church to help out or what? Uh, no, not at all. Um, so we were part of a big um, city centre church in Liverpool called Christchurch. Lots of students, lots of professionals, uh, lots of internationals and asylum seekers and all kinds. Um, but yeah, kind of links had grown. We were sending people over to preach quite a bit sending people to help run a kids club on the estate and that kind of just built trust between the churches uh, and yeah, the chapel had got to the point where they realised without help this is going to die you know if they were down to you know half a dozen older folk um, one one lady living on the estate everybody else living elsewhere driving in on a Sunday um, so they kind of they realised that's we can't keep going on our own. We need help. Uh, so, you know, really brilliantly and kind of humbly came asking asking for help. And yeah, although I wasn't I wasn't involved kind of directly in those first couple of years, we were, um, I was working for the church in Liverpool, so I was kind of offering some support and, and, and input, but just really saw that both the humility of those kind of brethren guys saying, we're willing to set aside some of our preferences and some of the things, the way we do things for the sake of the gospel. Um, and actually just really encouraging to see that partnership of lots of uh, younger folk. And, you know, this is the same one. We came across sort of slightly like, oh, yeah, don't worry, we know what we're doing. <laughs> and very quickly realising that we didn't. Um, uh, but, yeah, just that kind of partnership and, and, you know, sacrifice on both sides, really, of the kind of younger, yeah, kind of coming from a big middle class, really, kind of FIC church coming into a small Working class brethren church has been kind of an interesting, uh, interesting learning curve, but yeah, wouldn't change it for the world. Great, and what I found is most people uh, enjoy the benefits of learning from other people's mistakes, plus uh, so they can avoid making them, but also learning from uh, the things that have worked well. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to chat with you, John, after speaking with you in the autumn of last year, and you were sharing about what you did. It's I think Beachwood Chapel is a really good case study for uh, churches who are struggling to look at and learn how, to, learn how uh, they can find help, but also for churches who want to support struggling churches. Uh, I think you give a great, great 
understanding of how to do this well. Even though you said there was a bit of learning to go through, uh, you mentioned the humility of the Brethren Church seeking help and for the sake of the gospel, being willing to get rid of some traditions or, 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 or other preferences that weren't primary gospel issues, but also from yourselves being willing to, to move into a tough neighbourhood and uh, to move away from this large church setting, which uh, yeah, comes with its own problems. But I think generally in these bigger settings, you've got good worship groups, you've got lots of friends, you've got people who are like you, so it's more comfortable. So what was that transition like to go from a place that was familiar and comfortable into a place that, although might have been exciting soon, uh, the excitement is uh, counterbalanced with the realities of being on the ground? What was that like, the working? Um, I mean, there's been ups and downs. I think that's fair to say. I mean, Jen and I talk about this quite a lot. Like we we love it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was at a thing with with lots of other brethren kind of backgrounds, um, kind of or ministers from brethren background churches and elders recently. And we were talking about that actually the danger of materialism, um, and it was just really striking because lots lots of brethren churches have a history of of going to the lost and going to the poor areas. You know, planting in council estates, but more and more. They're now populated by people who've done well for themselves and live in the nice areas and drive in. And it, and it was interesting, quite a few people were like, oh, how have you, you know, what's that sacrifice? But it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a sacrifice to us. Mm. Like, I, you know, in some ways, you compare comparing us to, to friends in, in similar kind of life stage, you know, in terms of work and kids and who are kind of living that middle class dream of, you know, moving to, um, to be honest, actually, lots of our friends in Liverpool were like, moving to the Wirral, you know, because actually, you know, that's what you do. Move to the world, have a nice garden, a nice place. And so they heard, oh, we're moving to the world too. Oh, where's Beechwood? That sounds really nice. And then when they hear that it's an estate and it's they're not the nicest place, they were quite shocked. But actually, we wouldn't change it for the world. We, you know, I think God has blessed us in that. And I, and I don't think that's always, you know, I don't want to kind of say that, oh, if you move to a, you know, a rough area or a deprived area for the gospel, you will find joy in that. Mm. But I do think God is God is kind to us isn't he and he does he does often actually bless us in those things so we've you know we found really good friends uh, and you know there's a real caring community in the church that was already there has been there for a long period of time actually since well before the revitalization but there does feel like a family um, and actually i think in some ways our small little chapel does a better job of looking out for one another as yeah. as christian brothers and sisters than lots of big churches do um, and so it yeah, there's been hard things, um, and I think some of the hardest things have been not so much the transition to living on a council estate, but have actually been the, the heartbreak of, of people who've been going on as Christians turning their back on it. Mm. And, you know, that's hard when you're in a big church and when you're in a small church, but I think in some ways it feels, it feels bigger in a, in a small, struggling place like this because, you know, actually there's no one going to come through the doors quickly and going to replace them, whereas in a big church... Like, and maybe that sounds a bit mercenary, but like, there's always other people to step into the gap mm-hmm. <laughs> in a small church. You know, it, and, and part of that is probably also my danger of putting my hopes in people. So, you know, if only they keep going, we'll be all right. Yeah. Whereas actually, it, it probably should, and not as much as I, as I should do, but it probably should learn to call me to cry out to the Lord and put my trust in Him more than in other people. Mm-hmm. You know, if we just have an extra family, if we just had an extra single man our church would be great um, yeah but we, we love it and definitely talk it's interesting to, 
talk to friends, Christian friends who've kind of at similar similar stage, maybe have opportunities to come and join in with like a revitalization like ours or, or, or elsewhere. And have instead chosen, oh, I want to go and pursue my career and I want to go and pursue that. And actually they're really dissatisfied. Yeah. Because I think that's that's the truth, isn't it? Is that the you know the the desires of this world, whether it's yeah, the bigger house, the bigger car, the extra holiday, the you know, the nicer job, whatever, they're really appealing, but they're never satisfied. So there's always something else I've always got to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. Whereas actually I think, you know, and not because of any kind of spiritual insight of us, but actually we've just you know, God has blessed us and actually that's not been our experience. So, you know, humanly, they look like they've got way more going for them than we do. But actually in terms of that kind of contentment and that spiritual contentment, we seem to be miles ahead of them. Mm. Um, yeah. So everyone should come and join Beachwood and be content. <laughs> yeah. Well, I get what you're saying. So again, in your life, church, it was, for me, I'd be, often frustrated again thinking if only we had somebody to greet on the doors or uh, lead services or have a worship group for, for a long time we just used uh, I Sing Worship which was an app on my iPad which would play the hymns and then we would get uh, a couple of people who had just started learning instruments to play like worship for us and I, it was that constant uh, Tension between me wanting to encourage people and and remind myself that this is for the glory of the Lord. It's about the worship, not what it looks like or how it sounds, and, and being full of pride and not wanting visitors to come when people were doing the worships. <laughs> so, but again, what I found is so like our worship group, are brilliant. They've just been learning the the the, the 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 not natural musicians, and they haven't been learning for a long time. But they love the Lord. They're passionate. They're brave enough to get up there. And the good thing is, I think there's less pretense with it as well, because even if the chords miss, no one gets stressed, we just laugh or giggle. And uh, I remember one night in the house group, somebody was singing so out of tune that the whole house group was just like in bits laughing. But again, that can only happen, I think, in a small family-orientated meeting where a larger meeting, people probably get embarrassed, the relationships aren't as strong. So your failures and your mistakes... uh, easier to deal with, I think, in a smaller church, aren't they? So have you got any incidents like that where being in a small church is uh, people have been more forgiven if you've given a duff sermon or um, <laughs> definitely. I mean I mean not that I'd ever give a duff sermon, but like there's bit I mean that just makes me laugh because there's plenty of times when you know people fall asleep in the service. Yeah. And I like to think it's partly because of some of the age of some of them, but but afterwards they're always like, oh that was lovely. It's like you you just had a nap. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, and I know, like I am just in life, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. I know that that is, you know, I can be quite particular and, a, and overly controlling. So I want everything to be kind of, you know, so I'm constantly having to rebuke myself. That, like even just the other week, like you're talking about it wanting to be nice when people come. We, we were away and, and, and a bunch of our other kind of, you know, core people were away. I'm sure the service was wonderful, but a, 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 new, a new family came along. And I was, my first thought was, oh no, oh, they come on a bad week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, that's not what church should be. It's not about some kind of, we're not just trying to do an advert to try and get people to come to our club. Like, we want to, you know, trust, trust God in his sovereignty and that he will bring the right people. Um, and yeah, it's that, 
it's I, I, I fall into that trap still so much. Just oh, if only if only we could just do this a bit slicker. If only our website was a little bit better. If only our live stream, you know, you know. I mean, that was so hard over over lockdown. You know, we've got we've got no money, and we you know we've got one one of our other leaders is a works in IT, and so is brilliant at getting stuff like that. So we spent no money and did an all right job. But then, you know, I'm comparing myself and what we're doing to, you know, churches with people. Actually, to be honest, I'm even comparing myself to the BBC. I'm like, I want this to look as smart as, like, you know, BBC doing stuff. And, you know, that's, one, that's not what this should be about. But it's easy to fall into those temptations. And there's quite a few, you know, other people in the church who just are happy to say, shut up. There isn't, that doesn't matter. It's okay. It's all right to have a bit of chaos. Um, yeah, and we do that. Like, like I think about that with with people coming as well. Like sometimes, you know, during the week, well, not sometimes, all the time during the week, random people will just turn up. Which, I, and sometimes my temptation is, oh, I'm busy. I'm doing other things. Yeah. And actually, it's just really good to have, like, especially some of my other leaders are just really good at saying, well, that's you know, what's what are you, we, you know, we. You're paid not so that you can do all of these tasks. You're paid so that you can be helping equip us to reach out to the community. And that's going to mean stopping what you're doing and sitting and have a cup of tea with someone who's in pieces because they're grieving or who's, you know, desperate because they haven't got any fuel for heat and, and things like that. So, but yeah, I mean, I, I, th- I like to think I make less silly mistakes than I did five years ago. I probably just make different ones rather than less of them, but um, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, when thinking about when you turned up five years ago, you, you, you said you came trying to resist that idea of it's all right. I know what I'm doing. We're here. We're going to fix it, uh, but we still have pride in these things kicking. What what has surprised you the most in terms of what has been harder than you thought would be uh, ministering on a council estate, and and what has been the surprise blessing that you weren't expecting being a pastor on a council estate? That's easy questions. Hmm. I think I think the hardest thing has been kind of the the loneliness of ministry. So actually, I mean, at the moment, it's a bit different. We've got um, an American guy over and kind of been involved in stuff. And I've got a couple of, of guys from the church, or, or one now, that have been trying to do some training. So there's some more kind of other people around a bit more. Um, but it's still, and even with like the other leaders who are brilliant, but none of them work for the church. And they just don't, you know, they're not necessarily around so much. They're not necessarily thinking about things kind of 24-7 in the way that, I think you often do when it's your job and you're kind of employed by the church. Um, so it's a bit less at the moment, but yeah, especially those first few years, having gone from a big city centre church where there's a, a team of us as a staff, so there's always other people to talk stuff through. There's always other people to kind of share wisdom of like, oh, how do you think we can best support this person or what do you think we should do in this situation or, you know, to being like, oh, there is no one I can talk to about stuff. That was really hard. Um, and was also partly of my own doing, you know, we'd left kind of that church. And so there was a certain amount where I don't want to just keep running back to my old guys that I used to work alongside and just being a problem. It's like, no, I've got, got to be responsible 
myself. And so kind of didn't look externally to the church for that support as much as um, I think I needed to. And yeah, so that kind of, even being in a church with other people, that feeling of isolation uh, and feeling like, oh, there's nobody else who understands the day-to-day struggles of, of ministry and, in, well, and particularly in a council estate. Yeah. It was hard. Um, I think kind of unexpected blessings. I mean, I think, I mean, part of it is just the community on the estate. Mm. And that's a, particularly the, the church community within that wider thing as well. Like it's just, you know, it's a, we're, it's a pretty small estate. So there's quite a lot of us that live quite close to each other. Yeah. So actually having those people nearby, we're, we're, from going from in a big city centre church where actually people drive in from all over the place to be a part of it and didn't necessarily live all that close to people. And we lived in a block of flats and no one was interested in getting to know their neighbours. We're constantly you know, knocking on doors. Oh, hi, yeah, we're, we, were having, we were having a party. Do you want to come around? Whereas everybody's dead friendly because everybody stays there for the long term. Whereas in our flat in Liverpool, people are like, well, I'm just here for a year or two. So I don't want to invest in these relationships. I've got them elsewhere. Whereas here, people stay, you know, like our, our neighbour, uh, daughter lives over the road and her nieces and nephews live on the estate. And now that's the case, there's families who've been here for generations who all live around. And so in that wider community being, you know, and obviously that took time to kind of be included and, and be accepted because, you know, probably the same for you guys, well, I guess you're, you're an insider and I'm a middle class southerner. What am I doing on a council estate in, in Merseyside? Yeah. But over time, you know, we've built those relationships, we've built those friendships, both, you know, with the kind of wider community, but also it's been nice to have that within the church. So now we're at the point where, like, a bunch of our kids are all in the same school, and so, like, we've got loads of schoolgate friends that, you know, know us and know Amy and know others. Um, and that just, I mean, that's just brilliant. Um, and I think... I kind of thought, oh, yeah, the council say, you know, it's this community, great. But I don't think I quite realised. Not, I think I was thinking of that before we came over from a mission point of view of, oh, that's our area to reach. I don't think I realised actually how much it would be just brilliant to be in a place where, where there is that kind of one community, one coherent community, rather than lots of little things. I mean, there's obviously there's lots of little things and there's little, you know, this family doesn't like this family and, you know, this group doesn't like that group, but that's always the way everywhere, isn't it? But yeah. And just, I mean, I still vividly remember just a, co- a conversation I was at with a guy, just walking around with a guy from the community centre next door and just walking around trying to like chat to people. And there were these two older ladies in their 50s who were just, you know, who are you? What are you doing here? What, what's going on here? You know, and obviously, you know, I don't sound like I'm from from the beachwood so they're very suspicious and because there's just been a lot of a, a lot of history of you know organizations coming in when there's funding and then they don't really care so they go as soon as the funding stops and just their physical like just they were like you know but as soon as they heard that we lived on fourth Avenue, yeah suddenly their body language changed they went from this kind of to oh brilliant oh do you know so and just that's just stuck in my mind that's that you know i'm never going to be from here but the fact that we live here opens those doors to relationships to so many people. And just that 
just that body language trans- transformation has just stuck in my mind of just that of exactly how you see you see that happening in real time with when you talk to someone yeah. just that change of oh because it shows we're here for the long term yeah and we were very much before we came over you know and having seen the kind of some of the revitalization going on on and, and talk to others in similar situations we were like well we're coming you know god willing we're here forever yeah. we're not planning i'm here for five years and going on 10 years ago and you know god might have other plans for us we want to be open to that but our intention is to, to be here and stay and bring up our kids and you know, pray that they will stay and i think and i think that's particularly the case somewhere like each that you need that generational commitment yeah um, that long-term slow relationship building um, yeah. Mm. yeah again that when you talk about your kids that long-term generational input so one of my daughters is uh, working as a school dinner lady now, uh, and she goes off to Bible college. And uh, she was invited. All the kids knew her before she started working in there because of the youth groups that she used to run from the church. That uh, the, a lot of the other staff who lived local knew her because she's a local girl. And then uh, what we found as well is uh, that the teachers would, would come along. Uh, if there's an Easter event or a Christmas event, the, the, there's that trust between her uh, because she's known by the locals, she's known by the parents. So the amount of people that will come to something because, uh, not because they don't want to offend, but because they love you, because you're part of that community and the, the support you within that community. I think we could set right with their dog and people would turn up to that, to be honest, if we invited them. <laughs> uh, but it's because we've earned that trust over being there, not just... Mm-hmm us as the parents but as our children grow up in the area they build up their own relationships and have better links than we had because we came here as uh, as much as we want to be part of the community we're here with a role they're not there just living there uh, being educated then i don't know, i think there's something special about how our kids can can reach out into the community as well so just share a little bit because you're is it three boys you've got we've got our three boys yeah so, so how old are they uh so Elijah is eight on Sunday. Yeah. Um, Ruben's five, and Sam is two and a half. So yeah, and they're brilliant. Um, and yeah, I mean the school gate has been fantastic for us. So Elijah's in year three now, so we've had a few years of that. And like in terms of opening doors to relationships, um, getting to know people. But yeah, it's he's just part of the estate, isn't he? He, you know, he's you know well. Yeah, so he was born before we moved over, but the other two weren't. So the other two are like, you know, they're proper plastic scousers, plucky scousers, like, <laughs> from the wheel. Um, but, but Elijah's not. But, yeah, they, they will grow up, you know, side by side with all of their mates. And and that's the case with all the, all the kids that come along to the church as well, like that. And, and so I don't want to plan their lives for them. They need to make their own decisions. But, but there's a certain amount where I'm praying that at least some of the kids will – will stay and will live on the estate for themselves. You know, the, the temptation is that they all, you know, kind of, oh, they should go off to university and find themselves and, you know, get a graduate job and move to another city. And, and in one sense, that's, that's fine, isn't it? But actually, my real hope is that, that a lot of them don't and just, you know, become a carpenter or, or a spark or whatever and stay on the estate and serve in the church and, they become the leaders of the church in a generation time. I mean, they're probably not going to w- watch this, so they don't have to worry too much about, you know, making plans for them. But, you know, I don't want to believe the lie that 
the best thing for my kid is to go and get a degree and go and you know be a graduate like that might be a brilliant thing but that is no more good or godly than you know being a dinner lady or you know working in the shop and actually for the mission of the church i would i would love some of them to grow up and and stay and do that um well, you've got, but if you had a sparky, a plumber, and a joiner, you'd be laughing when you you'd save a fortune, and they'd be earning a fortune. Oh, and there's no yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's all there's always work for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, yeah, it is. It's it's encouraging to see uh, a young family ministering on a on, on an estate. Uh, what what? What was it that got you in? Is it's Jen, isn't it? Your wife. And what was it that got you both going from that sounds like a good idea to like we're all in? Because I can't imagine that in your early years you thought, when I grow up, I want to go and move to a council estate <laughs> in the north of England and be a pastor. What what was your dream prior uh, to, to, to moving to Beechwood? And, and what was it that sealed the deal for you to both go there as a family? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I, I still remember because obviously I was one of the cool kids in school. We, me and my mate used to draw pictures of like of, what, of where we wanted to live when we grew up. And it was like, you know, this massive mansion house with a swimming pool and a go-kart track in the back. And it was, and, and my mum had found, not long after we um, came over, I think it was, I found some of my old like books up in the attic from school. Mm. And one of the things, you know, it was, yeah, what I want to do when I grow up, I want to marry someone rich so I don't have to work. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is genius. I was a very clever lad. It's like I know I know what it's about. Yeah. But yeah, very like you know, it was just you know, growing up. My parents are Christians, but I, you know, I was and so I was always kind of you know taught the truth of Christianity, but also was very much thought thought. Well, actually, I want I want to earn a good earn lots of money and do well for them, for myself and things like that. Um, but kind of you know, kind of getting older and working and things like that, and then kind of. A, grown a love of of the church and a love of serving in the church kind of first off just you know wherever i was free and then and then my church kind of approached me and said well we think you should do some training for ministry um, and i hadn't really thought heavily about that kind of thing i thought like i love serving in the church and doing that so that sounds great mm-hmm. um but yeah i guess probably really was more thinking you know nice church in a nice town or in a city you know, working as part of a big city centre church with students or something like that. Um, I don't, I guess that coming over to Beechwood, it was, I mean, it was a, a funny situation. I mean, probably kind of the, the particular specifics of the background of of us coming over and, and Tim, who, who was the kind of lead of the revival, probably for another conversation. Mm. Um, but part of it was from a relationships with, with Tim and Amy, who who led it, and, and the guys from the Revitalist who come from our church, so it was good relationships with them, um, and knowing quite a few of the Beechwood people as well. And basically, when I'd finished all of my training, the goal was always not staying at Christchurch, but going somewhere else. And I had two choices, basically. I had uh, two places that approached me. So it was Beechwood, that we already knew quite a few of them. We had good relationships, but culturally was just completely alien, especially to me. I mean, Jen's... Jen's a scouser. She's a working class scouser. So it's, you know, it's, it's kind of her background to a certain extent, but obviously not mine. So we have Beechwood on the one hand and we had another church, basically yeah, quite, a, quite a wealthy, large town 
its own problems, but in some ways they're much more kind of cushy church job. Actually, it was quite a lot of kind of praying and wrestling about what what would be best. Remember asking other people's advice, and and some people being like, "Well, actually, because of your background, you you should go to the nicer place because you're always going to struggle in a working class area." And I think that that was there's a certain truth in that. In one sense, when you're an outsider, there's always going to be those issues. But actually, it just became clear to both of us that Beechwood would was just the place to go. Like in some ways, I don't think there was ever a kind of let's put out the pros and cons of both. I think just over time became really, really clear. This is a place. It was made easier by the fact that we had those existing relationships. So I think you know, if it had been here's an existing church on a council estate where you'd go and you wouldn't know anybody, that would have been harder. But because we already we knew lots of the people there, we knew that the vision was very much this kind of we want to be in the community, reaching the community. We don't want to be like you know live in the nice areas and drive in. It's a kind of you know, but it, it basically, and both of us separately had come to that decision and then talked about it, and that was just a real confirmation of well, that's definitely where we need to go. Then, mm. um, yeah, I was. Um, I mean, my parents have always been quite supportive. I, I I kind of played down some of the the rougher truths about what Beachwood's like yeah. to them. Um, to to kind of make that transition a bit more palatable. Um, but, you know, it's not the worst place in the world by a long stretch, but it's got its troubles. It reminds me of, have you ever watched, uh, have you ever seen the play Blood Brothers by Willie Russell? Uh, I've not known it, but um, I've heard of it. It reminds me of that posh estate, that, that overspill estate that the boys uh, moved to you know the family were living in a, in, a, in in the inner city and they were moved to a new council estate you know like is it are they called the sink estates moved out and that's what it, it has that kind of feel which i imagine probably would have been seen as the posh place when it was first built a bit like where i was our estate was built on field surrounded by woodland and farmland and there's a there's a national trust building just uh, a quarter of a mile from like our back door. So <laughs> when it was first built, it looked amazing. But then, obviously, if you if if you're right. putting people in nice houses but not giving them opportunities for education or for work, you still have the same social issues that that follow, don't you? So was yeah, that? Yeah. Uh, that is not Beechwood at all. Actually, it's um, <laughs> Beechwood was never nice. <laughs> that's, that's true. They basically they. Um, they were trying to knock down a whole load of the north end of Birkenhead and it was all, all the social housing and they just wanted to find somewhere to chuck everybody out of the way. Yeah. And so they built a bunch of new, cheap, badly built estates. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it was originally called the Ford and it was very quickly notorious. Yeah. Like, you know, the, uh, before I came across, got sent you know, some articles from like, you know, the Guardian and places like that, you know, made the national news about how the police had to start carrying automatic weapons just so they could keep up with the gangs um, and stuff like that. And, that, and that's it. That's what it, it's not like that now. Like it's got its troubles, but back in the 70s and 80s, it was notorious. And then actually the community themselves did a lot to try and get rid of the worst of, of the troubles. Was it built in the 50s and the 60s? Built, built in the end of the 60s. Yeah, slightly a bit later. I know lots of there was lots of post-war building. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, these were built a little bit later. Um, yeah. and how far because it, it, it's is it a bit of a is it it's own like community set out away from 
at the rest of the city and yeah it's a very dis- distinct enclosure you've got basically one one way in at one end of the estate and one way out at the other end of the estate it's kind of very enclosed it's an it's a funny one because you've got like Piston Hill, which is kind of which it backs onto, which is this kind of lovely thing. And at the top of the hill, you've got multi-million pound homes, and then here at the bottom, you've got mm-hmm. the estates. And they wanted when they built some more developments on the, on the hill, they wanted to completely block off access and have these high. And there's, there are really high fences most of the way around, but they thankfully the council insisted on putting a keeping a pedestrian footpath access thing. But otherwise, you're basically kind of trying to create this little ghetto. Yeah. Um, for it but yeah I mean Wirral's a funny place because I mean I suppose there's lots of places there's a lot of there's wealth and poverty quite close to each other mm. so there's lots of really nice villages around Wirral where lots of the footballers live mm. but even in those places there's rougher areas mm. but the whole Wirral's not very big but there is and there is a you kind of get the East Wirral which is the kind of Birkenhead Merseyside of it and then West Wirral is the sort of the nicer bits and you've got the, the motorway cuts it in half and there's a 20 year difference in life expectancy depending on which half you live in um, just because of the difference in the broadly in the, the urban deprived areas to the, the leafy villages so when your parents visited for the first time did you encourage them to travel through the leafy part <laughs> if there's two ways in <laughs> looking for funding you bring them in through the south and if you're introducing your parents you bring them well through. yeah I think that's a uh, that is definitely the case. No, I mean, I, to be honest, I mean, my parents, they've, they've been all right with it now. It was just those kind of, those at that initial time kind of trying to, you know, play down some of the worst the worst of things. But I think they've, they've seen, actually, as we live here, you know, that we've talked a bit more about stuff, but actually, you know, day by day, like I can go out of an evening and, you know, you're not frightened of being mugged or anything like that. It's not like, um, it's you know, it's like in lots of places, you know, gang trouble is mostly kept to the gangs um yeah so they've kind of come to their they've come to understand that it's all right um it could be worse it could be better but yeah but they're also encouraging you they they're very much like well you've gone there because of jesus and that's that's a good reason to go Um, and again like for me as a parent myself i'm very keen to see people sacrificing for the Lord, but if it was my own children, I'd be thinking, are you sure about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, well, one of my daughters sacrificing now by going to uh, Oak Hill. Do you know what I mean? She's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Going to go and, uh, yeah, suffer, suffer culture shock there, I think. Uh, she'd be better placed there than with me, I think. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's... Uh, you, you've got... Uh, kind of decisions to make you've got I don't know you don't have to convince your parents but I'm sure people give you good counsel you mentioned that some people had said do you think you'd be better suited to a different type of ministry you might not fit in there might be difficult for you there so lots of people maybe is cautious when you went into this type of ministry and Things whispering in your ear, you're probably the devil as well, saying, Are you sure? Or are we are we just totally fresh? Did you just think this is where we need to be and we're going? Or was there any doubt? Was there any fears going in? Uh yeah, there were definitely fears. I think I I can sometimes get a bit of a kind of like an, an inverse kind of working class chip on my shoulder. Like you know, I know for you it, it, 
it can be hard, like being, being a working class background guy coming in, you know, the wider kind of evangelical church can be a bit middle class. Yeah. For me, I can sometimes find that the other way a bit like, like, well, no, I, I mean, you know, don't, just because I'm not one of these, you know, don't look down at me because I'm not one of the, you know, I haven't grown up here and I've, I've still got valuable things to say. Um, yeah, I mean, there were some, like, some anxieties, I guess. Um, but, I mean, again, we were in that sort of slightly fortunate place because we were coming into something that had already started. Mm. That, you, you kind of, and because it was quite close and knew lots of people, I'd seen quite a lot of that. So in some ways, it's probably easier doing that because you've already seen other people trade trailblaze. Mm. Um, and actually just encouraging you, the church that we're a part of in, in Liverpool, as Crashes has been, they've been quite intentional in church planting, but not just in, oh, well, there's lots of us who are middle class who left plant in middle class areas. There was a recognition in Liverpool, actually, there's a lot of, and, and brilliantly, there's loads of great churches been planted all over the place now, but for quite a long time, there was great churches in the south of Liverpool and much less in the north and the more in the council of state things like that. So they've always been quite intentional. Well, let's go to the place where there's not already churches. So that often means the more deprived areas. So actually, we were part of a big church family that we'd been a part of for a long time that was very much like, well, this is good, this is, this is gospel hearted. This is. So there was a lot of encouragement and celebration of that. Um, even while there was also other people kind of, yeah, counseling, well, yeah, and you, you know, so I, th- I guess there were people who were like, who would say, of course, we need to plant churches into these areas, but you might not be the person to do it. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's fair enough. That's good. It's, it's sensible to be kind of trying to be thinking about that. But the truth is, is that there are not yet enough working class church planters to plant in all of the working class areas. Mm. So actually there needs to be cross-cultural mission. And, and that's very much what I think mm. like I and a lot of the church are. You know, the church is probably still two thirds middle class people, and I'm constantly saying, "We're we're cross cultural missions." Mm. You know, just because we happen to speak the same language doesn't mean that we understand each other, and so it can be really easy to talk past each other. So we need to be making sure we understand the culture that we're in and the people that we're speaking to, so that we can communicate well. And and just you know, that's been that's been the case since Act, hasn't it? That the gospel has needed people to cross those boundaries. And of course you want to, you know, if you're a church planter in Romania, you want to plant churches that can be led by Romanians. But until there are those churches, we need to be going in. That's constantly when I think that's the case in the UK, isn't it? With the working class and the council estates. So, yeah. I, in one of, one of my prayers for Beechwood is that in the next 10 years, we would have an elder who is from the estates. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, pray that constantly that's what that's what we want we don't want to be a church that always has oh let's bring in the next middle class graduates come in and be a leader and bring someone in from outside and bring you know i would love us to be a church that disciples people from this community well enough that they lead Mm. we're not there yet and that's what i'm praying for and ultimately you know it's up to god if he does that or not um but until we've got those people we need you know middle-class southerners like me to, to come in and try and faithfully preach the gospel and make disciples. And I'd, I'd, I'd go further and say, and beyond that, because um, even if you've got northern uh, working-class pastors and preachers and church planters, there's plenty of people up north 
well, it's the more the merrier, isn't it? So I don't think the job's done once we see that. I think we're, I think we're struggling to encourage uh, southern work, uh, middle-class pastors and church planters in the first place. So I don't think there's too many. And I was often misunderstood or misheard when I was complaining about the lack of northern working-class preachers or working-class preachers as a whole. People would hear that as a, an attack upon people like yourself who were coming up uh, to minister in these areas. And I used to say, obviously, I can't think that because the guy I'm training up to be the next pastor is some of <laughs> middle class. He's posher than you, isn't he, Prince Harry? So he's, he, he's actually taken over from me. So I've done the opposite. I've been a working class pastor who has uh, stepped down and, uh, and encouraged a middle class uh, Southerner to, to take over the role of pastor because, like you say, there isn't enough um, mm. pastors of, of any culture, of any class, of any ethnicity. Uh, so one of the things we're trying to do through Medes Ministry is encourage people of all cultures and classes. We're just looking for godly men who are uh, able and uh, and willing to come and, and serve the north of England, uh, preach the gospel, disciple and, and and raise up the next generation of, of leaders. And that is a myth. I think that some middle class people believe uh, that that you need to be working class to reach the working class. And it's, and it's a myth that some working class believe. As, as well, uh, that that. But the point is, if 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 you've got the gospel, if you've got a heart for the lost, that's what we're we're looking for. But I think where people have failed is not understanding that it is cross cultural. And I think what you were saying there is, is vital to see successful churches in these areas. We've got to see it as cross cultural uh, ministry, mm. uh, and not just cross cultural. But it's like we're not just crossing cultures, but we're we're crossing like worldviews. It's so post-Christian now. The amount of people who have never set foot in the church before is unreal. Is that the case for you in Birkenhead? I know it's got a big Liverpool's known as a big Catholic city. What's it like in yeah. Birkenhead? Yeah, it's the same. It's there's a lot of nominal Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Lots of people who would identify. Yeah, oh, I'm Catholic. Yeah, but what in practice that means is yeah, first communions, weddings, funerals. That's the extent. There's no. There's no meaningful kind of attendance or anything like that. Um, yeah, and yeah, loads of people have, and even like our building's not a churchy-looking building. It's basically just a big you know, concrete block. Um, so it's not like oh, I'm going into the big Anglican church that looks super intimidating. But yeah, there's definitely still a big psychological thing of people setting foot here, mm. coming through those doors. Of like, well, that, it's it's seen as like alien territory. Or enemy territory, even potentially. So what's been the biggest barrier for you, being Southern or being a Christian? What do you think gets the most uh, shock? Um, I think it is still being Southern yeah. here. Like, I think, yeah, Birkenhead. It seems, yeah, there's not too much. Yeah, I know more and more kind of culturally. There's you know, being seen as a Christian is seen as being a bigot. Yeah. I think so. There's there's kind of less of that. Right. Still here, there's still a certain, it's like superstitious religion. I think again, it's probably a lot of the Catholic thing. So I think, and I was interested. There are some people who are really anti-Christian and anti-church because of their experience of the Catholic Church. But there's quite a lot who are still a bit like, oh, you know, you're respectful to to the church, even though it doesn't really have any impact on day-to-day life. So I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely the southern thing. Um, is there? Uh, 
I feel sorry for you because not only are you an outsider in your community, you're Southern and you're a Christian, you're an outsider in the home as well, aren't you? So uh, your wife's working class, your boys are working class, so you're the only posh boy <laughs> in the house. Very true. Yeah, I do my best. My kids, my kids love, like, you know, guacamole. And Jen always laughs because they often ask for, a, can I have a ramekin? <laughs> so, you know, I'm doing my best to yeah. instill them with some great middle class uh, I love a ramekin of sweets. Yeah. So, so what about uh, what about Jen? What what's her experience been being married to you, or was she used to it being a Christian? You have to ask her about. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, in some ways, it's been hard for her because she she just well, I mean, just slower for her to get to know people really because she she worked part time. Um, and then with childcare and things like that, whereas, whereas I was just like out and about immediately trying to build relationships for her, especially before Elijah had started school, her contacts with other people outside of the church was quite minimal. So I think that was a bit slow. Um, and like, yeah, even though she's a kind of, she's a, a scouse, working class background girl, the kind of microcultures of Beachwood is a bit different to that, and it's there's still a lot about you know who who you know. So if you're trying to build relationships in, you know, you're starting from kind of way back because you're still. So she's still, even though she's from, it's probably only like three or so miles away over the water. It's still another world. Yeah. Um, but that's the case when people we know who've moved from like up the other other estates that are like half a mile away. You're still outside, so it was a bit slower for her just because of there weren't as many opportunities to to be out and see people. Mm. Um, but she's she's just much more social than me. She is better at making friends and chatting to people and, and, and being friendly. So actually, she's now you know thrives and is brilliant at the school gate and has got lots of good friends. And we you know we're involved in like Elijah's in a football team, and so we've got all of them and their families coming over tomorrow. And like, that's just been brilliant. Um, it's also, it's been made a bit easier for Jen as well. Her parents ended up, uh, have moved over to the Wirral as well, kind of coincidentally, um, kind of moved over about a year before we did. And so came from North Liverpool over here. So they're like five minutes away. So it's good. She's always been close to her parents. So that's nice having, you know, babysitters over the hill. Um, it's dead handy. Yeah, she seems to be. Yeah, I mean, you can get her on one day. Yeah, no, it'd be good because her I often hear what my wife has to say about me being working class coming from her. <laughs> she, you'd think she was more working class than me, that the way with her accent is now, but. <laughs> 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 uh, and some of the bad habits she's picked up off me. But I was constantly getting critiqued by, by my wife when we were first married for being like too working class. And I wondered if it's the same in your house if you are too middle class. Um. No, I don't think so. I, I think partly because Jen, Jen and her mum are like wannabe middle class. Right. Oh, I can say that because I don't think either of them are going to watch this or listen to it. <laughs> but um, yeah, it, it's funny. Like, so, so Jen's one of three. So she's got an, an older brother and a younger brother. And her dad and her two brothers sound properly scouts. Yeah. And her and her mum don't really, they've kind of got a bit much quieter accent. You could just, even just in the way they speak, it's just like, well, are you trying to be a bit putting on airs and being a bit more they were a bit more posh than you really are. Well my wife seems to do a similar thing. 
because she worked for social services and she used to have this like telephone voice. But since she's been working for the church for so long, she's just with people like me every day. It's like gone. So the re- the real hair has been emerging. But uh, it's interesting. Well, I think what what strikes me about you and Jen and the boys is is again you've a lot of people have fears about the ministry either being too tough and what will the impact be on the family or they come in and they see it as a as a ministry role but what you've done is you've actually just just dived in head first and just submerge yourself into the culture into the community and it's your ministry is just your life 24 7 isn't it the way you've explained it is you're taking the boys to football taking the boys to the school gate it's 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 24 7 how essential is it that your wife and that your kids are like fully on board? Can you do this type of ministry if only one of you has a heart for it, or should you both be really keyed into it? I mean, I can't imagine that you could. I think you just struggle. I think, I mean, in one sense, I think it should be the case for Christians, whatever situation that that they're in, that it's a you know, we're, we're called to be Christians 24-7. We're not called to be Christians for a couple of hours on a Sunday and a couple of hours during the week and everything else is just ours. Mm. But yeah, I think maybe especially in communities like ours where it's slow relationship building, slowly earning people's trust, it, it has to be just all of like, and I, yeah, I can't see how if one of you's all for that and another person's like, oh no, we must have, you know, we can't, you know, we can't have people come around our home all the time or we can't do that. Like, I can't see that that, I mean, I can't speak from experience because that's not been our experience. I'm, I'm very glad of our, of our experience. I'm, I'm really glad that Jen is just as bought into this situation as us and, and our kids are just, you know, seem to, seem to love it and seem to thrive on that. And um, yeah, I can't imagine it would help you have any kind of fruitful ministry if you've got that tension. But um, it's also, I mean, again, I can only speak from our experience, but maybe from outside looking in, it looks hard and it looks like a big, it's slightly intimidating. But I think our experience has been that when you just jump in, it's brilliant mm-hmm. and God, God looks after you. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think we're much more content here than we would have been kind of anywhere else, really. And I, um, yeah. I hope that that would be the case for other people as well, whether they're coming thinking about church planting and revitalization or whether they're thinking about, you know, just being you know, stuck into a church in that, you know, move into an area, you know, for, and being, you know, a helpful church member, but actually getting getting stuck in mm. to a little church on a council estate would be a brilliant blessing. And not just you blessing other people, but actually it's a real blessing to you. I think that's the thing we've seen. I don't feel like at all like, oh, well, here we are coming and blessing you, you know, in that kind of condescending way. I think, you know, we, have, we are blessed just as much as, as anybody else is blessed by us. Yeah. And that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, I think that is the thing, isn't it? You're not, you're not going to, to, to do a job. You're going to live a life. And within life, so there's hard work, there's trials and there's troubles, but there's immense blessings as well, isn't there? And I think that's what uh, I forgot. I, I expected my whole family to go head first into ministry with me. And as I've stepped back a bit and I'm traveling to other churches and, and I, I'm not the pastor of the church anymore, uh, especially my youngest daughter, 
it's like, oh, Dad, can we just go to our church on a Sunday? And I'm like, oh, can't you come with me? And I should have been like, I saw it as an inconvenience, but I've expected my family to invest into that church for so long then. I was a bit callous and thinking, because I'm switching direction that my whole family can can do the same thing. So I've had to be sensitive that they, my, my kids are as invested in the community as as I am. And like you say, they might want to stay. Mm. Uh, yeah, but it is a good thing to... At first, it was an inconvenience, but when you sit and reflect, I'm so pleased that uh, our Esther just loves the church. She feels part of it. She's wanting to be baptised and become a member, and uh, she'd rather be there on a Sunday than with her dad travelling up and down the country. So, yeah, encouraging. Well, brother, I, I, I mentioned at the start that I see see what you're doing. It needs to be a case study and, and looked at and... I hope I can speak to you again in the future and, and possibly with Jen because I'm wanting to encourage and use uh, this podcast to encourage people who are considering it to uh, understand the realities of it. And hopefully, uh, hopefully there'll be some middle-class people listening who are sat on the fence about whether they should get involved in uh, working-class ministry, especially up north, and hopefully you'll have convinced them to dive in. <laughs> I'll just leave the negative stuff about working class ministry to the working class lads. The the middle class lads are always far more positive and humble. <laughs> oh, great. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we get off then, John? Um, no, I mean, yeah, it's, it is a blessing. We love it. It's hard, but I think that's the case of it's hard wherever you live. I think whatever, it, in one sense, it is just recognising if this is what God wants me to do, then I just need to go and get stuck in. You, I don't think, you know, working for a church is not a job. It's not like a nine to five and I can switch off and I go and hide away somewhere else. It, it, is, a, it is a life, you know, I'm constantly trying to tell myself as much then. I am paid by the church so that I can be, you know, in this community and, you know, preaching to these people. I'm not paid by the church just to work nine to five and then I can go off and hide away somewhere. Um, that it is a, a whole life, but that is that brings real blessing and real joy. Well, John, it's been a, a pleasure chatting with you, and uh, I hope to see you again soon. But thanks for joining me on the In Context podcast. Cheers. Cheers.